0: Ribka writes regularly for The New Yorker. Her debut novel, Atmospheric Disturbances, and her story collection, American Innovations, were both New York Times Best Books of the Year. And her latest novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which was published in
1: June of 2021. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, thank you so much. And um, it's funny, all dates and times seem like so strange and weird to me now because everything feels like it's in a different order i feel like it,
0: nothing makes sense anymore do do you do you think you're do you feel the same way about the novel coming back to it a year and a few months That's later interesting
1: yeah you know um, it's i i i have a very specific emotion of when i turn this novel in because it was kind of um, it was uh, plague times um, and then it's like still plague time. So there's like a different, uh, is it, there is a different feeling and the same feeling, um, there's the, I think we all have like maybe, um, ways of managing like levels of alarm or what it is that causes us alarm. But when I was writing this novel was, um, I actually started emotionally writing it, I guess in 2016, which was like a high alarm period Mm -hmm. and uh it's just interesting to sort of titrate and see where you are in relation to your levels of alarm at any given moment yeah
0: um yeah (laughs) i think that's right um rivka tell us first about why you wanted to write a novel based on the life
1: of a scientist's mother um yes well thank you for yeah, that question. I you know, like, like, um for me, usually, when I finally finish something, I'm one of these people who starts a lot of projects and definitely does not finish all of them. And when I do, it usually feels almost like, like the project bullied me into finishing it, it sees me, it really wanted my attention. And that was definitely the case with this project. Um So it, it's funny, the main way I recall connecting to this story. to so the book follows the story of the astronomer Johannes Kepler and his mother when she was in her late 60s early 70s came under suspicion as a witch and Kepler sort of had to kind of manage this and drop a lot of things to try and protect her Um, and at the same time was somewhat implicated in in everyone's interest in her because sort of accusing someone of being a witch is is actually a passionate interest to have in somebody as opposed to indifference which would maybe be a more common way that people related to um, an old peasant woman at the time, which is which is pretty much what she was. But uh, I was um, spending a lot of time self-medicating with scientific biography during that kind of period of time. As everyone does. <laughs> As everyone does. So that was kind of um, basically the way that uh, the political um, hostility and fear and anxiety of that time processed through me was that I, I would think to myself, I don't want to read any more news because the sense that 20 minutes has passed and there might be something new to know is obviously an illusion. I have to have like a healthier relationship to this moment. And I would read the one thing about the biographies of scientists is I like reading about people who have died because you don't just live their present moment you're always sort of in the context of the whole arc which is interesting sometimes that makes it more tragic or more melancholy sometimes it makes it lighter um but I just thought scientists were an interesting way through because at least in their minds they're always pursuing the truth and that's always threatening to power or of interest to power. They either want to own the scientists, (laughs) redirect the scientists or murder the scientists, like all of those feelings. So so it's a pretty dramatic set of of lives. And um, it was almost like reading about other people living through frightening, uncertain, difficult times and just having a constant sense of change. So that was a very long answer, but that was how I stumbled onto um, the story of Kepler's mother because I had always been like interested in Kepler and there was like relatively so much less about him in the English language than a figure like Galileo, um, who even the indigo girls have a song about about Famously. Galileo. Um, so I wanted to know more and I had trouble finding stuff. And so sort of just by chance, I was like, well, I can't find that many books about Kepler, but here's one about his mom. I'll probably learn about Kepler along the way. And so that was an academic book that I absolutely fell in love with and seized my attention and just had that magnetism that it felt like it was talking about everything that was kind of on my mind and in my heart, but, but somehow through this like estrangement of, of, 400, of 400 years.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I learned from from reading your novel that, that is based in fact, of course, is that at the time um, that the story takes place in the early 1600s, astronomy and astrology were somewhat interchangeable. There, one wasn't just for the magazines and one wasn't just for the <laughs> so, And that's such a fascinating lens through which to think about your novel and and the story of Kepler's mother.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, on some level, I still have like a lot of respect for. Astrology, depending on how you put it, in the sense that it's sort of about telling stories that are useful to people and that somehow um, people can connect to. But one of the kind of most. Um, delicious little pieces of historical documentation that I came across was um, Kepler doing uh, horoscopes on everyone in his family, including himself and, and quite, um and he's sort of like in late adolescence when he does this and which, although I'm sure late adolescence was different back then, but it's, you know, it's quite bitter and, and funny and angry and honest. And his depiction of himself as, as sort of envious and jealous. And, and it's just kind of a beautiful, weird, investment of faith and rigor at the same time so it that was like a beautiful document that came along the way and then it has this nice trajectory through his life because he was like the equivalent um because he had to give he made his living basically preparing astrological tables and preparing horoscopes and he himself lost his interest or faith in this as a kind of way to um, make political decisions, for example, he was often pressured to give horoscopes that would help um, in political decisions. And he would try and emphasize that there was, the stars were were not like the greatest guide, guidelines for this sort of stuff. But so it was beautiful just to see that arc and see him on the one hand, make his daily bread in this way, find his own genuine interest in the in the skies in this way and and age out and through it and still be stuck with it. it it's kind of like, although, you know, a, a genius from 400 years ago is never relatable, it's also like totally relatable.
0: <laughs> I was going to say that the term quiet quitting
1: hadn't.
0: I think I think that is mighty be relatable. Um, Tell me a little bit about getting to know the village where the story is set and the timing and um, what kinds of things people were into and up to.
1: Yeah, so that was again really delicious. I think that, like, uh, for me personally, I, I almost like reading more than I like writing, or I like writing when it feels like just really focused reading. Like you're really. Um, like a high level of of concentration in reading. So what was so fun, it was a really fun novel to write, and and one part of what was so fun was just looking at sort of guides to plants from that time period or looking, um, because scholars have done all this work, and Germany is so famous for being good at paperwork. Um, But in this case, it was actually true. You can see what people got tickets for. how much people got paid for being the guy who gave out tickets. And you would get tickets for things like having a spinning be laid, you know, spinning yarn after hours or Mm -hmm. um, all these. There was just this sense of fear. So they didn't want people gathering and gossiping. You could get a big ticket and a fine for saying something untrue about somebody. And there was like this whole um, system of trying to manage slander and gossip, which of course, like ended up generating a whole other realm of slander and, and gossip. Um, but it was just wonderful to be in the pretty easy to access historical world. That was part of one of those moments where uh, you felt this tremendous gratitude for the people who would sort of done all the work of preserving, preserving court records of really banal things, um, harvest schedules, uh, guides to medicines in a sense, for lack of a better word, all of these things were available and just like a wonderful to read through. You could find out like kind of what year had a bad harvest and what year had a good harvest. And, Mm. you know, when they started, um, saying the only people who can have their pigs feed on the acorns here are those that belong to the nobility and when they opened it up to more people and when they closed it down again. So that was just fun and again, probably like, um, it's almost a, it's a useful misperception. It all feels so tightly analogous to our own experiences. So that's like a, I know that that's a misperception, but I find it to be like a fruitful one. Absolutely. Um,
0: it, tell me a little bit about Katerina's herbs and, and the way that the the kind of faith that she has in, in healing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that's moving to think about, to me at least, is that um, Katerina was in this time period, someone who um, raised four children into adulthood. Um, She was illiterate. She was um, not not from not from money, although she eventually was able to get citizenship. So she wasn't sort of the most vulnerable. Um, But she basically she had a she had a ne'er do well husband who seems to have like basically tried to die by signing up, signing up to serve as a mercenary several times um, and, and succeeding eventually in in dying in that way. So she was, she was alone and she had to earn her own living and she had to manage things on her own. And she was very intelligent and completely lacked in education. And I think there's actually, a, I mean, I almost feel like I don't want to say it out loud, but there is like a special training that comes out of that juxtaposition of having sure. so little formal education and having a lot of curiosity and interest in the world. So one of the ways that manifested for her and actually for quite a number of women is that she had um, a detailed knowledge and interest in what she could manage and what she could manage in terms of, you know, even when she gave birth, like that period of vulnerability and unsafety. What do you drink during that time? How do you behave during that time? She had, of course, a lot of ideas around that as did others, but she also did straightforward research. She had a skin condition that her mother-in-law also had, and that they, they did like a lot of variations with different herbs and they changed things and tried it again. I mean, we don't have a better term for that than than science, really. So <laughs> she, she, she would do that. She would do that iterative kind of investigation into herbs, and of course she also, um tried to make some extra money off of it and would sell these little packets of herbs in relation to different um, illnesses. And, and just as I wonder how different it was from today, but, you know, probably a mixture of successful and unsuccessful. And um, whenever someone has advice, someone gets mad about the advice they're given. And that happened to her several times as well. It was very intimately related to why she ended up being accused of being a witch. And so you have
0: her, this very intelligent, somewhat independent for the time, woman who then cannot tell her own story, really, because um, sh- she needs a guardian to, to be able to actually talk to us, the, the
1: reader. Yeah, that is um... I'm so glad that you brought that up. Part of what made me want to write the book was when I came across in in the in the history, you come across the fact that as a woman, she she couldn't represent herself in court, and she needed a legal guardian. Um, and it wasn't her son, and it wasn't her other son, and it wasn't her son-in-law, mm-hmm. and it was this elderly neighbor and, and it about halfway through her trial, there's a record that the elderly neighbor steps down and says, he feels too weak to continue. And that was to me, that was, that was why it was, it opened itself up as a novel. Cause I didn't, I thought what a powerful relationship that must've been and, and kind of what, what precipitated that, what precipitated the incredibly, the real act of generosity of being that guardian and whatever would precipitate no longer being that guardian. So, yeah, so she was, she couldn't write her story and she couldn't represent herself in court. And there's also this wonderfully interesting aspect of the trial, which is that part of what saves Katharina to some extent or makes her less vulnerable. She's still very vulnerable and, and at every risk of losing her life, but the statements of women and children are not to be taken seriously. So there's this strange um, glow that comes from the history where you think, oh, it's terrible that the statements of women and children aren't taken seriously. Oh, it's wonderful that the statements of the random people around her aren't taken seriously. And so there's this, this this light that way because of course her statements aren't taken very seriously, either. And and what's primarily asked of her again and again is to display an emotion that the community thinks that she should display, um, of regret for all the things she's been accused of, which in- include you know the the deaths of babies and just the worst possible things. So I don't know. It's an it's a, it's sort of a nice. way to think about our time for me, because I feel like for me, my feelings about the present moment are so basically rigid and inflexible and preformed. And I can't even have a thought, you know, because it's it it just seems like I have almost no room for a thought. I have room for op-eds, which is really a degraded and low (laughs) form of thinking and bad for the inner life. I mean, great, a great form of um, expression that's available in the world, but like not but a limited form, right? So so going into this other period was like a great way to kind of just shake everything up internally, selfishly. Like you always write your book, you hope to entertain others, but, but you're also sort of writing it all by yourself. So it has to <laughs> serve you in some way along the way.
0: And we talk now of who has to face consequences and who doesn't and we see katarina facing the consequences as well as all of the people in her orbit tell me about
1: that yeah no one thing that um connected me to her story so katarina is extremely vulnerable like she's she's genuinely like an old woman like a woman her age today would be much much younger than she was so she's she's quite um she's quite vulnerable and and um i've never been accused of being with i've never been under the kind of stress she's been i've never i feel like her stress is so extreme it can almost verge on being pornographic, to think about it too directly. Just like mm-hmm. that is just such extreme suffering and pain and vulnerability. And and in a sense, it's, it's almost alien. Of course, like everyone, I've faced ups and I've faced downs and I've faced difficulties, um, but I, I certainly have not been accused of being a witch. But what I do feel like was pretty um, strong connection for me to her story was the sense um of being a of being the neighbor like what is it to be mm-hmm. a good neighbor is it possible to be a good neighbor how is it possible to be a good friend when you when you're adjacent to something obviously unjust like this i mean i wasn't interested in like Maybe it's not unjust, maybe, maybe. maybe it's appropriate to persecute her. And I thought, well, how, you can't really write a novel about something that's obvious. But what was less obvious to me was was what what does a good friend, what does a good son, what, what can anyone do or what should they do? So that's why the story opened up for me um, through this neighbor who 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 tries to who make who's sort of like most of us, who makes a pretty good faith effort. He should. That's yeah, he does.
0: Guy. And it's like, when, when do you stop? What's the limit? How much do you have to sacrifice for yourself before
1: you pull the plug? And that I felt like for me was the con- the the connection to the current moment, because in a sense, like the, the centerpiece of persecution or Abuse of power, all of these things I feel like are so tangled up and so rigid and really important and really interesting. But most of us are living kind of in the hazy cloud all around it, where it's like, well, what, where is the power? What is it? Who's abusing it and how? And and is there anything I can do for for the for someone who is vulnerable? And and I feel like that's, and what does it mean to do something for the person who's vulnerable? Like, I didn't want to think about that in a contemporary world because it's too, it belongs in nonfiction. For me, that is like a, the realm of specificity, nonfiction, journalism. And I sort of felt like this, this was the realm of, um for me, sort of, novelistic imagination and... Yeah. Um,
0: And and it's important to, I think, maybe remind uh, the people watching this that um, the stakes are very different um, in some ways, in terms of... I I say stake, I I didn't realize it was a pun. that that there were all of these laws about when torture is okay and when it's not when you just put someone to death. And um that is a thing that that hangs over Katarina the whole time.
1: Yeah, no, and, and there's it's funny because I also smile at like those horrible things because mm-hmm. they're so they're almost like too big to process. But um, another element that was that was interesting was seeing the way the moment. Uh, so she's under, sorry, she's under threat. Uh, she's under attack for being a witch. And um, although it's not like Monty Python and it's quite different from the, English, the witch trials of Salem and has a different character from the witch trials in England, there's still this kind of double bind in which most of the accused are under because the main way out of the bind is showing remorse, but showing remorse is admitting guilt. Mm-hmm. So that you're just stuck in this bind and you can't and you can't really get out. And part of what was kind of either inspiring or despairing, depending on like my mood, was learning all the efforts to make to make witch trials more just. Nobody, not even Kepler who had sort of broken up with astrology. <laughs> was going to say that witches weren't real. Like, that was just not They're going to be part of the defense. That was accepted. Of course, they were real. Of course, they were threats. threat, and we needed to defend. Um, but there were all these efforts to try and make sure we were more fair in terms of who we burned and tortured as a witch. And um, And some of them like requiring masculine testimony to really convict somebody you see how well-intentioned it is and how backwards it is and and there was a lot of things like that and and they sort of went into great detail in, in in what was i guess like the equivalent of a a sort of attempt to have an enlightened way of proceeding they had this code of the carolina how many people had to accuse you um, did you have a, rel- a known relative who was also a witch, or did you not have a known relative who was also a witch? All these try- attempts to make the system more just, even though of course, like the entire system was broken, there was nothing <laughs> appropriate <laughs> about accusing anyone of being a witch. But again, yes. I felt like because it's in the in the past and it's over and it's not threatening you or me currently, literally, I felt like there was like room for me to have to think it, think it through more with the imagination than, than if, uh, you know, then just go and becoming kind of apoplectic. Like every time I, I open the newspaper and have my, my feelings, whatever they might be. Indeed.
0: Yeah. I was thinking not to dwell here too long, but your book came out before January 6th, 2021.
1: Or twenty twenty two. But we um, knew it was happening. <laughs> we all knew it. there's like um, I uh, actually, I'm trying to remember because it's all like goes together. But I, I, had, um, I remember I had gone ice skating because I knew it. We all knew it was going to be a horrible day. It was obvious it was going to be like a really awful day. Um, and so I remember I was in Montreal at the time and every public park they just like make it so you can ice skate there. So I just, I, I, rem- I remember, I remember that. Yeah. But, uh, but I feel like the world already felt pretty precarious and like it was sort of. Anyways, I'm not going to go there. But just the, okay, the, let's so, not go there.
0: Just, yeah,
1: just, Brad, this idea, yeah, just this idea that even when you try and say something true, you're already engaged in this sort of somehow you've already like given the ground that, that witches are real and a real problem. Like you sort of feel like before you speak, you sort of feel like, wait, I I don't even want to give away any of that ground. And I feel like I have.
0: And I feel like you, you really hit that point home and it seems like you had a lot of fun doing it when, when you get the voices of the other townspeople and
1: their questionings onto the page. Yeah, that was super fun to write. So the way I I didn't know I would write the book that way. I knew I knew I was interested in Katerina's voice. Obviously, like, why would that's super fun to think about? Like, what is the mother of Johannes Kepler going to sound like? Um, That was I knew I wanted that and I knew I wanted um, her neighbor because I love a narrative voice that has to maintain some sort of lie to itself or that is ashamed of something and has to protect it. Just that sound of covering something up or being ambivalent about something. I love that sound. Um, but then I thought, well, there's all this... The historical record was so delicious, I just couldn't let let it go. And I also felt like it was important to me that, in, you know, I now feel like more like an old lady than I ever have. And I, I, one, one thing I feel pretty confident about is that almost everyone I know or have ever met or have even ever come across on the Internet is pretty sure they're right. And I wanted that sound of just like a, a lot of people who are pretty sure that they're right. And every once in a while, like a crack of like, well, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't know everything, but uh, that was um, a, a fun, but in my mind kind of realistic way to bring the town in was just the sound of hearing people feel certain everyone feels certain whatever side they're on
0: and in the middle of all of this chaos and trauma you managed to make the book so funny tell me about humor in, in the book
1: yeah no i wish um I'm so glad that you thought it was funny. And all I ever... I think of funny as like a nice barcode on something being kind of truthful, because you know how funny works because you're expecting something and then something else shows up, but it's almost like... You wouldn't laugh. It, it's almost like if you laugh, then it must be hitting something true, because otherwise you would be like, just not respond. There's something like about the laugh that feels like it's like adjacent to something kind of true. So I I have like a lot of faith in. I have a lot of faith in humor as a way to to prevent yourself from your own fantasies and your own sentimentality. So that was important to me. And and so many of my uh, favorite books and writers, it seems like horrible things are almost overwhelmingly dealt with in a comic tone. Um like uh, I, I there's a a writer who, uh Andrei Kurkov, who's Ukrainian, who uh I think most people are most familiar with his book, Death and the Penguin. But all of his books are very funny and even before the current war it hasn't like been a picnic to be sort of spending the 21st and late 20th century in that, in that part of the world. And, um, he talks about his tone and his humor in an interview. He talks about how, you know, growing, He feels he became a writer because his older brother and his older brother's friends who he admired so much would just sit around and get together and tell jokes. And that was their way of talking about the political situation. And when they'd see each other, the whole thing was, do you have a new joke for me? That was like kind of their way of mm-hmm. connecting on the street, and that. I just feel like, yeah, there's just something deep. Of, there's something. There's something deep about that. When I was young, and 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 life was pretty smooth <laughs> and easy, and shows like Friends like made sense, <laughs> and what we spent our time kind of watching and doing. I feel like I was really loved very sad, very tragic stories and stuff. I just, I think because I didn't know what it was like, and and I still didn't know what it was even when I read those things. Um, and then there's something about experience that I just, it almost like turns into humor without, without wanting to. It has like no choice. That's just like what experience does, at least for a lot of people. I love that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: The the fun ones anyway. Exactly. <laughs> um I, I I should have warned you I was going to ask you this question as I do on my podcast. But since you're talking about an author you admire, will you give us a couple of book recommendations?
1: Well, yeah, well I think um well since I had mentioned Andre Korkov, I'll say that he has I, I think all the books, I've read him in English I'm stuck reading him in English. And I think um, a good amount of his work has been translated into English. But uh, something he put out called Gray Bees is one of my favorites. So mm-hmm. Gray Bees, it's sort of um, it's two people who wouldn't really be friends, but they're sort of like the last the last dudes kind of running their lives in the Crimea in this one na- in this one area. And one of them is just trying to take care of his bees. And uh, that's an amazing Funny, excruciating, sad, interesting, wonderful, brainy books. So that's probably one of the best things I've read in a while, or something that I think is is a great read.
0: Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to talk about? And that's Favorite not
1: recipes a- or anything. <laughs> that- <laughs> what TV are you watching? What is it? Pomegranate. Um, no, I think it's super fun talking to you. Just. Just as, as, as unsurprisingly very fun to talk to you. And to you always,
0: and to read you. Um, thank you, Miami Book Fair. I hope yes, everyone enjoys themselves. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.